people with no headphones. This meeting is being live streamed. I am Tobias Carlisle. This is Value After Hours, joined as always by my co-host, Jake Taylor. Our special guest today is Scott Weber. He's the Senior Portfolio Manager at Vaughan Nelson. He runs a concentrated large cap portfolio. We're going to talk to him right now. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, Toby. Good to be here. Great to break the fourth wall here. (laughs) Well, funny enough, so Scott and I are both in St. Louis right now for an event. And uh, I don't know, we're maybe like four doors down from each other in hotel, different hotel rooms. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) But it it felt like it was going to be too crowded to try to jam, you know, in front of one computer. So we, we opted for this. I think it's a good idea. Let me, let me ask you, Scott, what, what is a large concentrated large cap? What does that mean to you? Uh, That's a good question because it's relevant to us. Concentration means less than 30 names. Uh, and, And we feel like that gives us the ability to express the conviction in the work that we do. And, and it frightens some folks because it sounds like this too concentrating of diversification is held over your head like the sort of Damocles. And, and it turns out that mathematically, you don't need to own 100 names to be diversified, right? You, you can have ample diversification. Like we would argue better diversification than the S&P 500 um, through factor work, et cetera, through careful consideration of, of, of what really moves a stock. Um, and, and, and of course, Large cap is going to be determined just by relative framing on what's available in the world. So we're not buying small caps necessarily. We're we're hired to uh, to beat the S and P essentially. So what's a big position at inception? Well, big at inception would be kind of full five, right? Uh, not often do we do that. Uh, there are seldom. I mean, I can think, you know, a classic example, and, and here we go right into the compliance gauntlet with naming names. But a classic <laughs> example. Is you know we we bought back when it was called Google uh, when they um, when they announced the Motorola acquisition, which was universally you know just thrown up upon, and we we started pretty close to a five percent position, knowing the business having that opportunity. But I can count on my hand the number of times we've started there. Typically, it's a two to three percent of capital type position, and and I should mention we are not you know market timers. Um, so we are long only and we're fully invested. So we occupy the equity component of our clients. And you know, we, we say we're the protein, and, you know, you remember back when you were a kid, part of this complete breakfast when they're selling you a sugar cereal, we try to be the protein. We got the protein and the veggies. I guess that makes me the carbs here. Yeah. Toby, you're the... <laughs> boxed you out on that. <laughs> how, um, how, how do you think about, so you, you, you say that you're, uh, diversified or potentially better diversification than the S&P 500. But how are you thinking about diversification, concentration of names and sectors? And how, how do you think about that? Yeah, so in our industry, we're trained to think about it in terms of sectors. And I find that to be really blunt, right? Uh, so so a couple of years ago, um, S&P breaks out REITs separate and distinct from financials. They get their own label, but that doesn't make them more or less interest rate sensitive, for example. Um, you know, the other side of that is you look at a company like Amazon, it's a consumer discretionary, but realistically it behaves as if it's a technology stock. So we use a, a proprietary model, and we stress at the beginning, we're fundamentally driven bottoms up, but we've got phenomenal factor resources internally that are proprietary. They're driven largely by data that, that, that we stem from an outside vendor, but we can 
ascertain, it's essentially a big regression on what's moved stocks at the end of the day. So if you can ascertain what's really driving stocks, you can own you know, less than 30 stocks and have a beta that's similar or lower than the index because you're not stacking factors because you're, you're blinding yourself with sector bias. By and large, sectors are a generally good tool, but like I said, they're blunt. And if you look at the index for comparison, whether you want to use the Russell 3000 or the S&P 500, it turns out, again, because cap weighting, that top end is monolithic, right? So, so you've got, you know, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet with the two classes added together, Meta, Tesla. You know, you, you, you get down a pretty good ways before you get to United Health or, or Berkshire Hathaway. And so that top end looks a lot alike. We've got a, a, a chart in our deck, which I don't know if you want to link these things, but we can link it. Um, I, fancy names for all of these, by the way. The, the, the better the data, the funnier the name, and we call it the bubble chart. But literally, it is just a factor correlation of each of the two stocks, and we cap sort it. And you can see when you look at the index, it's uh, you know the way we the way we draw it. It's it's a bunch of blue circles, and, and if you look at our portfolio, it's fewer blue circles, more blue and red, you know, indicating that the names are not highly correlated from a factor sense. And so we we think if, if for no other reason because we start with an engine that's considering you know a, a little bit above thirty overall factors, and some of them move together, right? The, the, to the extent that three or four factors behave similarly, you don't need to diversify across them. You just need to have exposure to one of those. Now, those relationships change a bit over time, but to the extent that you've got exposure to, to one of those factors, the other two or three are going to behave similarly. We call them virtually independent. And right now, you can describe the the the, the behavior of the index, I guess, if you will, in, in kind of a mid-single-digit number groupings of factors. That's taking 33 or 32 down to 6 to 8, just because even though Amazon, as I mentioned, is consumer discretionary, it behaves a lot like Microsoft. Uh, whereas our portfolio has somewhere close to double the, the number of virtual independent instruments. And that's going to take a huge asterisk and, and description, I'm sure, for compliance purposes to describe what that is. But the, the net effect is if three things behave similarly, you don't need to own all three. Yeah, do you feel like that? Sorry, sorry, Jesse. The, do you feel like that that the factors? The more that you we see indexing, kind of eating the total total allocation pie, do more and more factors kind of clump together in that scenario? Yeah, especially at the top. I mean, uh, on a year to date basis, what is the S and P up mid teens percent, something like that? You know, the Nasdaq somewhere up forty percent, something like that. I mean, it, and and the top, those names that we described, that top eight or 10 of the index, what is it, 30 or 40% of the cap weighting, the index? So, so yes, is the, yeah. is the short answer to your question. Are you quantitative? <laughs> Me personally, is, we're digging right in here, aren't we? <laughs> so yeah. we, uh, how high can you a, count? Yeah. <laughs> Let's look at this. I, I, Jake, I think I told you last night I, I was uh, at this reunion this weekend. Uh, my, my friend has uh, two kids in college, one studying calculus, one studying accounting class. And he said, no, dad, it's not a counting class. It's an accounting class. Um, <laughs> I'm more likely to need the counting class, uh, but we've got a team that we work with uh, who are quantitative, I would say. But more importantly, the process and what, the way we manage uh, capital is not uh, this is an adjunct this is a 
It's an information source. It's a objective partnership, if you will. Um, and so we can understand, for example, if I'm considering including a name in the portfolio or, or considering excluding a name that we have owned, we also want to do, we start with a fundamental sense, but we need to know from a qualitative standpoint, what does this do to our factor exposure, right? So again, to your question about what is concentration, if we're going to be between 25 and 30 names on average, I want to make sure that we don't have massive factor stacking at the top end, i.e. we're not a, uh, a, 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 a closet tech fund. But at the same time, there are certain factor exposures that we might choose to over-index or under-index. And so what it does is uh, this, and, and this team is an essential component to what we do and it's complementary because it, it's not, I mean, personally, I'm not quantitative. The process has a quantitative input that is complementary, but it doesn't drive the investment decision-making, if that makes sense. So the investments are discretionary, bottom-up, fundamental analysis, but then whether yeah. it's added or taken away from the portfolio, there is some consideration of, do we need the fifth energy name or whatever it might the case might be? Do, yeah. do we just need, are we too exposed from a risk perspective, perhaps? And energy is a great example of that, right? Because if you look at that sector, the, the, look, the price per barrel is really the, the predominant driver. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, especially if you get down, there might be some nuanced differences between one small cap drilling in one basin versus another offshore in, in a you know, exotic location. And so you've got different risk parameters that you're bringing in there. But realistically, at the end of the day, even though we try not to invest based on the underlying commodity price, in other words, to the extent there's upside in the commodity, we want to get that for free, right? We don't want to pay forward for that. But your risk is very similar. And, and, and energy in particular behaves almost monolithically. Let me give a quick shout out to all of the uh, the folks at home. So Seattle, first in the house, Santa Domingo, uh, Gulf of second. Mexico. Got a question from Brent. Going to have to come back to this. Uh, Going to be, why do I think that government should raise rates much higher if you've got to pay more debt? Pay more on the debt. Petitikfa, Israel. What's up, Brandon, Mississippi, Moncton, Canada, Savinlina, Finland, in the house. Marita, Durham, Gaza, Palestine. Really? Whoa. Stay safe there. <laughs> yeah. London, Battersea, London, Toronto, Hamburg, Germany, Houston. What's up? You got a Scots from Houston, Albany, Gothenburg, Sweden. Salam from Dubai. How is everybody? Thanks for joining us. I think I've got all of them. Oh, Winter Park, Florida. Sorry, Knoxville, Tennessee. I think I got all you guys now. Cool. Let me ask you. Scott, uh, there's, a quick, there's a quick. Sorry, go, JT. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to make a joke that uh, you know Scott's from Houston and you know land of big trucks and oil and everything, and but then his initials are SJW. <laughs> I was just <laughs> laughing. About couldn't help but point it out. I, you don't strike me as a uh, particularly a social justice warrior. Well, I might have my soft spots. <laughs> Scott, um, to what extent does the macro factor into what you guys are doing? If you're fully exposed, probably not a great deal, but, but how do you think about it? Well, you've got to be aware of it, right? I mean, to the extent that you're a ship going through an ocean, if you see a wave coming, you want to turn into it. I mean, for stability. Um, so we use uh, obviously outside providers. Um, I, I'm I'm less interested in what 
an analyst forecast for the S&P 500 at the end of the year is I'm more concerned with where we're seeing inputs. Uh, you know, obviously, and I think the world has become more attuned to this, but liquidity absolutely matters, not just rates, liquidity. I think there's a, well, I want to say it was a Druckenmiller algorithm that, you know, fundamentals may move securities, but, but liquidity moves markets, and it's absolutely true. So we've got a, a host of, you know, tools that we've built internally to track that. Um, and we have one person on our team who comes through H8 data every Friday afternoon. Um, but, but, but to the extent that it is, you know, go, go, going back to Alphabet, is the Fed activity going to change our investment thesis this week? No. Um, is it important over time? And is it a consideration in the background to the extent you, you build a mosaic for each and every security? 100%. Absolutely. What about something that so I I, I get uh, I get teased because I talk about the the ten three inversion a lot, but to what to what extent do you look at rates or you know those sort of things like the ten three, which I like I, in my own because I'm fully invested, whether the ten three inverts or not is sort of largely irrelevant to the portfolio construction. I just point it out because it's got a record of front running recessions, which you know equity markets tend to do poorly in recessions, to, to put it mildly. So. That's that's why I'm like I'm alert to that to that as a risk. But do you, do you look at it? Do you think about it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it is important, and, and certainly to the extent that you want to look out the risk curve. If you're looking at a business that is, say, more dependent on external capital, and there's a debt roll, it's not it's not a, a financing need that gets you. It's a rolling the debt need that gets you from a bankruptcy perspective. And and you know we're looking at like there's a business that Jake and I are going to discuss later today that. Uh, you know, that's got a, a substantial amount of debt. Its average coupon has a three-handle on it. They're rolling into a six-handle market. They're going to be less profitable, right? I mean, just prima facie. Um, to the extent that an inversion implies recession, I think one of the comical lessons of 2023 is we entered this year with everyone on the planet waiting for a recession that may or may not have already arrived, depending on whose scorecard you want to use. And yet, at the same time, We'll have you know half the analysts on the planet out there trumpeting that, that the the curve inversion is a nearly perfect record for 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 predicting the recession, and at the same time, an almost nearly uh, stalwart record is that you know however many number of times you've had the S and P uh, forget the specifics of this I should have written it down but uh, if you're down more than twenty percent by August you'll be up the next year something like eight out of ten times. That didn't fit the narrative, and so nobody trotted that statistic out until we woke up in August and said, "Oh my gosh, the market rallied! How'd that happen?" And by the way, where'd that recession go? Um, if, if if a business is 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 using external capital, rates absolutely matter. It's absolutely part of it, and and I think that one of the fundamental things that we preach is that you have to underwrite the credit before you can understand the equity. More often than not, as equity investors, we take the credit for granted. Uh, the big lesson of 2008 was that you can't do that anymore, but you can have acute credit stress. And you know, to call 2008 a great recession, I think is probably not the right label. I just think it was, you know, it, it was a it was a credit distress event. Um, and and there are at the moment, I mean, it's funny, you know, we talk to our institutional clients, and there's a, a decent cohort of institutional clients who are de-emphasizing their public equities in favor of private credit at the moment. And, and I, I think that 
there may be some merit to that discussion, but it, it overlooks what I think you're getting to, which is that rates are higher, spreads are not yet really meaningfully higher, to the extent that we do go into a recession, they will be, and there will be ample businesses with private, you know, sponsored businesses that have trouble rolling their debt. I spoke with somebody yesterday who works at a, uh, a healthcare business that's um, private equity sponsored. That's, I think, by his admission, seventh in their market, and uh, and you know they're rolling their debt, and 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 of course he's worried about his job. Well, there's real credibility to that view, right? I mean, to the extent you're first in the market, you've got an asset that might have strategic value to somebody else in the space. To the extent that you're seventh in your market, you've got a call list and, and you know a product that clearly has lost out to better product in your marketplace. When your debt matures, it's going to roll to the extent possible at a higher rate. It's going to cost you more. And that could be the straw that breaks the camel's back there. Do, do you have a view on where we are in the, where the economy is, whether, what whether it's cooling? Yeah. It's heating up. Now, it sure feels like deceleration, doesn't it? I think um, so, yeah. I, I, I think that, you know, this particular week, and as I look over, you know, Cash Carey's on Bloomberg right now, the Fed is being vocal about needing to maintain discipline. And there's a certain cohort of equity investors who cry foul and say the rates are too high, you're choking off the economy. And a few people who want to run for president probably say the same thing. The... Uh, Fact of the matter is, inflation is, is really tough on assets, and to your audience, we don't need to describe why. But as long as that view holds amongst policymakers, and as long as we don't have, we, we do not yet have a labor crisis, and I think crisis is the right way to think about it. I think to the extent that we've shed jobs, much of them have been technology or finance white collar jobs, which aren't. Let's just say if you. If you lose your job as a barista somewhere, chances are your marginal propensity to consume is more diminished than if you lose your job at Facebook, right? Um, and so jobs are not an issue. Uh, inflation is off the boil of you know June a year or so ago when it's a high single-digit number. It's still above the target. And certainly to the extent that you look at PCE, which is their purported metric, there's no, there's no basis for saying the Fed needs to act unless you just want your stocks to go up. And of course, I want our stocks to go up. But we also want to play the long game here too, um, and, you know. So, so you you are not at the extreme either way, but you're not accelerating either. It doesn't feel like. That said, from a, you know, so from a monetary standpoint, we're, we're we're restricting the flow a bit. From a fiscal standpoint, whether it's the Chips Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, there's a lot of stimulus going in to uh, to the capital market space essentially. And uh, and that offsets some of what the Fed's doing. Yeah, that really muddies the picture. I don't know how you resolve that one way or the other, honestly, because I don't know how I don't know that Inflation Reduction Act, like the rate at which they're getting that out the door, seems to be pretty. They seem to be getting it out pretty quickly. And there's a lot of spending around. Yeah, I, I, I think the name's wrong too. <laughs> <Right? Yeah. laughs> you might have that backwards. It's when when the, when the when the bill was passed. We know that inflation was on the front page of every newspaper in the United States. So it was important to say it. And, and I think for a large portion of our population, if you say, hey, look, we, we did this thing called the Inflation Reduction Act, somebody at home can say, look, they're reducing inflation. 
Um, that may not be exactly what's going on there. And, and by the way, there's external forces, not the least of which, you know, the war in Gaza, right? The war in Ukraine. Uh, the Panama Canal doesn't have enough water to get all the ships through. I noticed earlier, two ships have turned around and passed back. Well, guess what? If you ship through the Panama Canal to the Gulf Coast of the United States from Asia, and now you've got to go all the way around Latin, or, you know, South America, that longer ton miles seems very inflationary to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard, it's hard to know. Not, not great, Bob. Because it's we, we we've been through such a such a strange time with uh, COVID and then the lockdowns and then all of the you know that stopped production domestically made importing more difficult and so there was the back there was a big backlog of ships out here in Los Angeles yeah. at the port for a long time and at the time we were we were joking about the fact that like they were projecting. It was, it was going to take them 18 months to tidy that up, which, you know, to me, that just sounded like we don't know when that's going to be tidied up. But I guess they've, they must have got there by now. They must have sort of cleared it because it's not in the news anymore. And I don't see the, I don't see the ships out on the ocean here. Well, the look out the window, Toby. Tell us, give us a real time update on that. I only see a handful yeah. of them around. So they must have sorted that out. That would have seemed to no me to be a interesting expert. But, but as I recall, you know, that, that backup was largely resolved, I think, in the first quarter of 22. And if you think about the seasonality of, cargo shipping into Long Beach, or there's a lot of toys that are shipped in in the fall for obvious reasons. And when those toys didn't make it under the tree by Christmas, but they were still on the boat and on the way and they came over and they arrived January, February, maybe into March, your seasonal adjustment on that first quarter GDP was was completely wrong, right? <laughs> right? The, the seasonality was wrong because of the post data that. And that's why we had a good print there, which I think fed into the inflation narrative in a way that a lot of people didn't fully appreciate. That doesn't make any sense to me. I thought the Santa brought them on Christmas <laughs> Eve. Do well, they have to come through the port? Of course he does. Oh. Uh, he just drop ships a few for easier distribution. Okay. <laughs> the reindeer need to stop for green juice. <laughs> <laughs> to what extent do uh, – so you talk about – we talked earlier about the, the concentration of the Magnificent Seven – the last number I saw was 33%. I'm not entirely sure how old that was, but say 33%, which by any measure going back, that's that's about as high as it's ever been. That When I look at that, uh, while that is that does seem like very high concentration and traditionally that's been a warning sign that some sector or something has got a little bit overextended, but it seems to me now that those businesses really are the biggest businesses in the market. Like They're, mm -hmm. they're, they're rich, but I don't think that they're overvalued in some instances you could probably make a pretty good argument that some of them are fit reasonable value what do you think how do you how do you navigate that as a large yeah. cap manager yeah yeah i think i mean your point's correct right the, the, the concentration's high there have been periods of time when it's been high i mean you think back you know prior to you know prior, prior to a lot of investors lifetimes now but nifty 50 period etc if you look at Polaroid and Exxon and the companies that were the darlings of the day, you didn't have them all really in one industry. And and certainly, you're right, the, the top, depending on how many numbers of companies you want to use in the, the top end of the index, are 30-ish percent. But it's also on a year-to-day basis over 80% of the performance. Right. right? It matters. Mm -hmm. And and they're all, I mean, 
three of them are in the cloud business, right? Several of them are sort of AI play. Right? I mean, four. I mean, it, there's decent concentration around a business, which I'd further point out is not as capital intensive as the businesses were, um, you know, nifty 50 period. So, uh, you know, if you, if you go, I think, I think Michael Mobison and others have done great work on the distinction between an income statement today versus what you would have seen back then. But all that goes to your greater point, which is, yeah, they're good businesses, right? Um, we don't happen to own Meta, for example, and, and, and you could look at that and see, for example, the, the, the product monetization arc coming in reels, and you could see and, and get excited about that. But at the same time, you've got a management team that was losing Charles Sandberg, who many would, would have said was the, gr the grown up in the room, the adult at, at the party, so to speak. Um, and you've got a management team that's throwing tens of billions of dollars at Reality Labs. And here we are today, fully capable of putting goggles on for this conversation, and yet we choose not to do it. I don't know where that market will be. I just know that it's an incredibly profitable business that, in my estimation, was flushing dollars down the toilets. And But for a stroke of luck, they had a change of heart to reduce some exposure there. And it turns out that the NVIDIA chips that they bought have application for their AI efforts, right? blind luck, uh, which, which has been helpful to them. But it doesn't change the fact that the underlying business at Facebook is a good business. The underlying business at Google is a good business. Apple is a good business. I mean, Apple's a tech company that is essentially a, a high margin staple at, at this point. Um, and, and, and further to that, I, I, I shudder at the fact that I'll be the first to bring up this whole growth versus value thing, because I, I think that <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, I, I, we're going to preach value and, and our, our firm, you know, is our roots are in value. But at the end of the day, I've never met a value investor who would swear off growth or a growth investor who would voluntarily overpay. It's just a question of where you think that is. But point of fact, a lot of these businesses are in the growth and the value index. Right. So that coupled with the, you know, so, so you don't have a disparity on that metric. You don't have a huge disparity on, on what they do. You just have this crowding about the top of the index, which to me says that if you, if you want diversity, if you want to get away from that, maybe, first of all, does that mean, does that undermine the validity of the S&P 500 as a benchmark? Right? Look at it over time and, and you know, far be it for me to cast a shadow on their business model. By the way, that's probably the greatest business model. You get to use our name and you pay me a bigger and bigger fee every year. And guess what? We're going to raise the rate more than inflation. I'd love to own that business. Um, but it's cheap every now and again. Yeah, I, it, I, I just feel like as an investor where capital of pr preservation is a pre-existing condition for survival. Yeah. Having all your eggs in one basket is risky. Now we're paid to be measured against the index. And so we have to be aware of it, but our goal is to compound our client's capital at a mid teen rate, right? We want positive asymmetry. Right. In other words, if we've got a 50% upside expectation, we cannot have a 50% downside expectation. No, it, it, it can't be a flip of the coin. It's got to be a better than 50-50 bet. But we want to compound on a mid-teens rate because at the end of the day, our clients hire us. Yeah, they, they, they choose us instead of or maybe in, in complement to an index because they think that we can do better. But part of doing better is not looking exactly like it. Yeah. And so to finish first, you must first finish. Um, and, and so that's why having an absolute return goal, I think, is 
an essential component of anyone's approach. Uh, otherwise, you're just playing a game. You're not investing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it's an interesting construction of those top seven. They are, they're all regarded as being tech, but they are still like Netflix is quite a different business to Apple. <laughs> Apple's quite a different business to Google. Microsoft's completely different again. A Amazon's doing something completely different again, even though there is a lot of overlap with the, the cloud and they're probably buying and selling a lot of services to each other yeah. too. But that, that concentration makes me nervous when I see it get up like that. When I, see, when I see things that are unprecedented in the market, I always get a little bit nervous. Well, they're all ad businesses at the end of the day. And if you think about it, right, they, they've destroyed pretty much every other form of advertising. And that's because the efficacy of a digital ad at, at various forms is way better than you know putting something in print or, or radio or even up you know, on the billboards. And I mean, it, it just, it's measurable in a way that those other forms are not. Um, and, and it's it's more interactive. It's just it attribution. It first, yeah, it, it created a new space, and, and essentially, in so doing, it, 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 depending on how deep you want to go in the ad rabbit hole, you go from being an ad advertisement to being a commission on a sale at the extreme. Right. Hey, T, do you want to, do you want to take a shot at uh, your veggies? I do, and I shall. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> this, uh, I just happened to, I don't remember why it popped up, but uh, in late October 2020, I did an interview, uh, an appearance on tip with, with Preston, Preston and Stig. And, um, and yeah, I don't usually talk about individual names ever, but I made an exception that time. And I, and I talked about Fairfax back then. And, you know, I thought it might be kind of interesting now that we're three years on to do a little postmortem on that, what I saw at the time, what's happened since. And, um, you know, if you rewind the clock back to, you know, three years ago, I mean, we were smack dab in the middle of the, the pandemic. We hadn't, we still didn't know what we were really doing from a policy standpoint. Not sure if we ever figured that out, but, um, but the, uh, but you also had like, the market had ripped 30% off of the March lows already by October. So the market was kind of, I felt a little bit like whistling past the graveyard sometimes, but um, anyway, we, when I was looking and like, you totally, it's easy to forget, but like us treasury, the 10 year was at 0.79, like 0 0.79. Um, and we were talking about MMT at that time. We were talking about can rates go negative in the U S I think there was something like $17 trillion worth of sovereign debt that was trading in negative rate territory already. Like, and you know, why wouldn't the global reserve currency also, you know, potentially trade negative in, in the, the line from the last 40 years pretty much look like this, you know, direct arrow that was going to go negative. Um, it's not over yet. It's not over yet. <laughs> You're right. Don't call it. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, of course in that situation, like banks and insurance companies like Fairfax, they're going to have serious trouble earning on their assets, right? I mean, they have this big pile of cash that they have to do something with. Um, and if you're getting 0.79 on a, on a 10 year, boy, like your, your ROE is, is going to suffer. Right. And Fairfax was no exception at that point. Um, they had really inconsistent operating results for the five years before 2020. Um, you know, net, net income was roughly flat in 15 and 16, 17. It was a little better. I think it was around 1.7 billion. Then 18 and uh, 
it was flat again, two billion in nineteen, flat again in twenty, right? So you're just like kind of up and down, can't really get it in gear. Um, and the ROEs, of course, are following that same kind of earnings pattern, and they were relatively anemic, especially compared to historical. If you looked back, uh, and you know, Prem and, and team at that time were being much maligned for this hedging into the face of a bull market at that point. Uh, and the narrative was really that a lot of the pessimism uh, was, you know, basically was justified because they, you know, they they weren't doing a great job in their investment portfolio. Uh, it was kind of up and down, and it just felt like, where is this going? Um, but the market sentiment actually, surprisingly, the price to book over those that that five year period uh, was actually like one point two times, which was was high um higher actually sorry it was that was uh a high of one one and a half times in 2015 right and and a low of 0.9 in 2019 and the five years before that from 2010 to 2015 they were actually cheaper they averaged about one times price to book during that phase right so you had like results and yet it wasn't really that cheap all along and i guess maybe people thought they were going to figure it out I, I don't know anyway what's happened in the three years since that that setup uh, you know, of course, insurance rates have uh, experienced a hardened market mostly through that time period, what, and they've had pretty good results, as you would probably expect. Uh, net income in the last four quarters alone has been almost five billion dollars, uh, and that's on a today like you know twenty billion dollar market cap. Um, and you know, these rates going up obviously is really helping their ROEs quite a bit, and and especially for Fairfax, who they didn't take a lot of duration risk, so their bond portfolio didn't really get pinched and hammered as much as other people who took more duration risk, more credit risk, um, and really reached for yield during that time period. So uh, as bond yields have been going up, they've been able to deploy into these higher yields. So, uh, and the average ROE for Fairfax since, since that podcast came out has been around the 20% range, uh, which is obviously quite a bit healthier than, than zero that it was before. And, and naturally then the math book, book value has grown from 11 billion to 20 billion. Um, so in late October, 2020, the price per share was around $266. And today it's, you know, it's around 900. Um, now, lest you think I did anything too heroic here uh, with that price movement, my cost basis is, is higher than that 266, but <laughs> not like not, not a ton. Um, but what's been really interesting to watch has been, it's been fairly easy to hold it this entire time. And that's not always the case often when you have a, a price going up of something that you own. Uh, and it's because I felt like Mr. Markets never really pressed my hand by giving me too tough of a decision by pulling forward gains. So uh, the average price to book over this time period, the last three years has been 0.9. Uh, so you've still been like below book value this entire run. Uh, and the high was earlier this year, but it, and it, it didn't even get above 1.2. Uh, so it never really felt like, hey, man, this is getting kind of expensive. You should probably punch out. No, it's just been business results growing, staying relatively cheap. Um, and so you haven't really been that tempted to sell. And when I contrast that with something like Markel, which I've, I've also owned, um, on average, it's traded at 1.4 times price to book. So, you know, it's a, there's a little bit of a difference between 1 and 1.4. 40% by my math, uh, but <laughs> but it briefly got down to, to 0.9 price to book in March of 2020 for like a week. Uh, and I was a relatively happy buyer at that point as well. And that's, 
it's not anything heroic there either. It's just you follow these businesses and, you know, they sell off occasionally. And when they get to that level, you know, if you just kind of hold your nose and buy, I think it, it tends to work out. And, uh, you know, I think one of the interesting things I've observed is that sometimes the higher quality business is actually harder to to make money on because it doesn't just like it doesn't trade at these extremes that some lower quality businesses do. And as long as you feel like in general that the the trend is a little bit up and to the right for the business results, the fact that the the valuation can move so far up and down away from that actually provides you the opportunity to kind of be a clever buyer and seller along the way and and boost your return over and above if you just bought and hold the entire way. So it, it's ironically, sometimes I feel like I could make more in a Fairfax situation than even a Berkshire, even though Fa- Berkshire objectively is is a better business and, you know, across almost any measurement that you would want to trot out. So uh, the, the difference between just purely business analysis, but also, you know, being taking advantage of Mr. Market. Um, I think you have to marry those both together if you want to get the best results that you're, that you can. Yeah. March, 2020, what a great time for buying stuff. Pretty much. Who knew? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Unless you put it all on toilet paper that day, you made money. (laughs) I I posted a few things. I I, I was tracking Berkshire's price to book through that and Berkshire got about as cheap as it got. And most of the comments underneath were how the book value was impaired at the same time, which was true, but you know, slightly missing the the vast forest for the trees. So Jacob, it may not have been your intent, but one of the veggies I took from your your, your uh, discussion of Fairfax there is the notion of standard deviation of a stock price, which is often conflated with risk from a mathematical sense in our business, could mm-hmm. actually be not necessarily just risk. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the standard deviation gives you the opportunity set to to be able to do things that when when it moves to extremes, it you can hopefully make some smart decisions around that. Um, as long as you can get comfortable. And I think that the more that I think half this job should probably be really keeping just an inventory of businesses that you understand and and kind of trust. That the, that the trend is generally up and to the right. It doesn't have to be perfectly linear, but, um, and then just being patient and waiting for when they do go on sale and and then being a little uh, cutthroat when they get overly expensive and it might come back to you again. What would you call that list of ideas? Uh, idea inventory? I don't know. It's, it's funny. This is, it? It's exactly what we do. We don't know what to call it, right? So we've got our name, you know, we've got our 27 or so names today that we own. And we've got a list of probably a hundred great businesses. I call them great businesses. We've called it the idealist, which is not really ideas because these are names that were met with management, met with competition, met with suppliers, understand it. And if given the chance to invest, we could act quickly. And that's where most of our ideas come from. Um, and we nurture that, you know, we, 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 I can't say it's the same level of, of maintenance and diligence that for things that we own, but to me, that's the wellspring, right? That, and I mean, I, I've been at this firm for over 20 years now. There are businesses that we've owned maybe three times through that period. And the good thing is most of the things that we do in this industry from a knowledge perspective are cumulative. Said differently, very seldom do you look at a business that's a higher ROIC business with improving margins and then all of a sudden it's not, right? Occasionally you've got a, a, 
you know, a business that has a, uh, a lower return division that they sell off and, you know, it pops up or maybe they deploy capital and they haven't fully absorbed the fixed costs yet or something like that. But by and large, there's certain attributes to businesses that tend to be sticky. And so there's utility in maintaining those ideas and names on the shelf. Um, I just don't know what to call it. <laughs> watch list. What, watch what? list. Yeah. Great. I feel like watch list implies kind of more like you're watching the price. I don't know if that's fair or not, but in my mental model of the world, and it's not really the price that you're necessarily hyper-focused on. I think it's also kind of maintaining some range of intrinsic values where you'd be interested in, or maybe even, you know, ranges of valuations that you would be interested in doing, taking an action. Yeah. I feel like this earnings season has been a lot of volatility around earnings, particularly that companies have sold off like in, in size 20, 30% um, on earnings that haven't been that bad from my, I don't know, I've seen it, but even, even the, even the Magnificent Seven have sort of had pretty good earnings and then gotten smacked in the after hours. I think a lot of it's recovered. I saw, I saw something that I think they're at all time highs as we're speaking, but that's always true, right? Evergreen. Yeah, flipping over to the screen, it's definitely shades of green. Um, I, I think you're right. I don't have a, a study on the data yet, but anecdotally, there's been more noise this quarter than there has been in the past. And I, I think oftentimes when everything, this goes back to the liquidity comment, when liquidity keeps coming in, it's a function of you know up and up more. Um, when, when you're at sort of a slack tide, let's say, uh, mm. Fundamental performance matters. Uh, and to the extent you have a competitor report a good or a bad quarter and your stock price reacts, and then you report something similar or opposite, you might adjust or correct that. But the, um, I mean, and, and I think said differently, for most people, you know, their investment lifetimes have been marked by declining interest rates. We're through that for a while. Um, it would be very difficult to have another 30 years like the last 30. So for the next 10 to 30. Where do you go? Negative 10? Yeah, exactly. So, so you don't have that kind of extra wind in your sail. So the alpha component of your returns stream is that much bigger by comparison. So you can't lean on beta as much, if that makes sense. I've got a, I've got right. a suggestion for your watch list uh, from the crowd. Uh, Patrick Murphy says you should call it a bullpen. I like it. Ooh. Bullpen. Bullpen. Because I, yeah. I think watchlist kind of these are names that we kind of follow, want to look at, and add and do the work. But you're right, bullpen connects that we've done the work. We have the ideas contained, sort of speak, and I like that. Yeah, John Huber has a construct that he he uses baseball related, and it's like uh, you know, like his triple A team, his double A team, majors team stuff that you own. So I I love using sports metaphors. When, when we talk about investing, and I, when we talk with clients, I say, look, you you know, if you're going to pick a, 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 t a team to win the, the game, you know, you need one good quarterback, you know, a good line, a running back, receiver, defense kicker, et cetera. And I, I get laughed out of the office, particularly by my colleagues. In fact, one of my colleagues is a huge NBA fan, and I, I respect it, but it's just not, it's not my favorite thing. I don't follow it. I, I'd rather follow stocks, but I digress. And I made a reference to the worm the other day, which clearly marked my age. And he had no idea yeah. who the was. And so I'm working this in only because I've been sworn off discussing and using sports metaphors in the context of client meetings. 
But unless and until this is specifically construed as a client meeting, I feel like we're okay with the sports metaphors. You can use it's them. I might miss a few of that. <laughs> JT's going to get your baseball references. If I'm all thumbs in basketball, I'm not going to be no good on cricket, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah cr cricket rugby. and rugby. That's what I'm going to be talking about. I, I can meet you there in soccer. Kangaroo uh, boxing. What else you got, Toby? <laughs> Yeah, I, I say uh, I say that I, I played soccer when I was a kid, and so I understand the offside rule, which which makes me Bill Belichick among the uh, the, the 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 dad coaches in AYSO soccer. Oh yeah, no nobody understands the offside rule. It's hilarious. Even even the referees. This is no, it does seems to be arbitrary in enforcement too. At least in the league my son plays in. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're all volunteers. That's what I that's what I always say. It's funny, I had the first admission visit a baseball tournament the other day, and I was chatting with one of the elms in between the games. And he said, you know, sometimes the strike sense this big, sometimes it's this big. Really depends on how the game's going. It's like, I really appreciate your <laughs> candor. I didn't think anybody would ever admit that. Unfortunately, we don't have that luxury in our business, right? I mean, the, the, the data is objective, right? It's, it's green or it's red at the end of the day. That's all you can handle. And, and, and I think too many people in our industry go out and try to pick, you know, a team full of Tom Brady without considering that they need a line and a running back and that sort of thing. I think you hold everything to the same, you know, super low risk, high return, et cetera. Obviously it's got to meet those thresholds and ideals, but at the end of the day, you have to have components that complement each other. And, and just having to our earlier discussion of diversification, just having two different sectors represented doesn't do the trick. They, they need to actually be complementary assets. That's a fun game. What's uh, which stock today is, is Tom Brady. <laughs> well, what undervalued? Like not, not retired, but yeah, not well, retired. It but depends on what what vintage. Say, yeah, say. Well, that's the question too. Like, it's the vintage. You know, is it best years behind him, but also the greatest of all time. I don't know. You look. I the first name that jumps in my mind right now. Uh, it, it, well, there's, there's. I'm going to say one of them because because the, the other one might not might not stay in my mind in that context, but. Uh, is, is Microsoft, right? I mean, if you think about it, uh, I, I think that C. Ballmer probably gets short shrift for the, the accusation that anything decent in Microsoft was subsumed in Windows because that was his baby. It's probably not without uh, merit, uh, but also not fully true. You know, but, but the transition that the company's had since Satya arrived, uh, or at least took over with respect to the cloud transition now on straight into AI, it's phenomenal. It's just unbelievable. And if you look at the productivity gain, I mean, just today, our, our own, uh, the, the, the folks that, that do the data representation for the factor analysis that I was describing earlier with the fancy bubble charts and, and whatnot, um, you know, they tell me that the productivity gains that they have through using ChatGPT, which isn't specifically Microsoft, of course, but it's similar. Um, are unbelievable. And if you think about how many programmers they have at that business and just overlay any sort of productivity gain estimate for that over the number of people that Microsoft employs, it's phenomenal. And it weaves through everything we've discussed so far with respect to Magnificent Seven, even advertising. And by the way, you don't have to have Bing be a competitor with Google as a search engine for it to work. Right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't hold out hope for that. Well, we're going to need all these productivity gains to uh, offset all the money printing we're doing. I think there are two notable events this week that we should we should discuss. One of them was mm -hmm. uh, Sam Bankman-Fried 
Freed has been found guilty of fraud. That they, I, I was watching snippets of the of the cross examination as they came through Twitter, and then late Friday night, somehow he was the. I saw it on like Asian uh, Bloomberg, I think Bloomberg Asia was uh, announced the the conviction. So that's a maybe the the uh, period at the end of the the mm. crypto craziness over the last three years. And the other thing was uh, WeWork has slipped into bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. That's that's one that I find I find that a little bit perplexing because I would have thought if there was a business that was built for this time where you know, offices are being cleared out. People are lot largely working from home. You know, working from home is pretty lonely. If I if I had a place that was like quasi coffee shop with some like private office space that was like a a WeWork, for example, that would be a good place to be. I'd probably have a and and, and they can't make it work. I just find that bizarre. I think somebody's going to pick up that 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 idea and run with it, and there'll be a WeWork. In five or ten years' time, it'll be not called WeWork, but something like that. What do you guys think? I guess the capital markets just don't get Adam Newman, do they? I mean, he was out of the picture by the by the time <laughs> it went public. He he wasn't there, but he yeah. did, he did he did okay. I'm not worried about Adam. He's clipped out his Billy. <laughs> oh. Wow. <laughs> this environment that you describe, where people gather and do work in the same place, in Texas, we call that an office. It is. I agree, yeah. but there's, but I think that I I can see something where, you know, the the offices in in Los Angeles are all clustered downtown, <laughs> and you can't go downtown, and so you want to be sort of closer. No one, to no one goes there. It's too busy. Well, so, it's not that it's too busy. There's no doubt that there were quiet. regional differences in in the COVID response with respect. And you know, I remember a couple of years ago when Jake and I were here, we went out to dinner. And we, we couldn't get an Uber for twenty five. Actually, last night it took about thirteen. But you know, whereas we had folks in, in Houston who just kept going to the office, right? And there are health concerns and political concerns that deserve attention but are not germane to this conversation. The fact remains that today, if I've got a meeting in Boston or New York, it's going to be Tuesday through Wednesday. It's not going to be on a Monday or a Friday. And I think a large portion of that, and LA is probably the same way, a large portion of that is because there's really long commutes in those cities, right? Yeah. And there are people in Houston and Dallas that have long commutes, but those are sort of, sort of by choice and a fewer in number with respect to relative population. And some of it's because, you know, in Boston, for example, the train service isn't operating with the frequency that it did pre-COVID, as I understand it. I'm no train expert, subway expert. But so there's a, there's a work environment attribute that really has taken over from COVID. Um, and that, that it is remains- weird. It is weird to have like Monday in a big city being a ghost town, and then mm-hmm. Tuesday you you can't it's get a, a seat to eat lunch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tuesdays and Thursdays are zoos. Mondays and Fridays are ghost towns. Mm-hmm. Kind of hard to run a business with that utilization rate, isn't it? I mean, you can't run a business that's servicing at, the, at these fixed businesses. costs, right? That's you need you need lower costs somehow. The rent is too I, damn high. It just seems obvious to me that office is going to get office and everything that feeds into office is in a little bit of trouble here. And it, and it, I think there is some recognition of it. There's some crazy buildings are going for sale for just silly numbers as far as I can see. 
but they're just there's only a handful. We haven't seen the we haven't seen the flush. We haven't seen the sort of wave of yet. But I guess that all the debt falls due over the next year hasn't hasn't sort of happened yet. Haven't had to come to reality. Survive to twenty five. That's the that's the mantra. Rates will be back lower again. You can refinance, save your bacon. Don't sell out now. You got to get there though. You, I guess I guess if it's leased out, I'm just saying it's not me saying that. I just uh, no, no, I agree. I I have heard that. I I realize you. I realize you just. I don't know. It's a it's a it's a funny time. But do, do you do you consider those things, Scott, in the uh, the portfolios? Like, okay, what what are you? Because the the things get cheap often because people know that there's something wrong there, and you you got to kind of tease. Yeah, you it have. Out. To your point, you know, funding costs are higher. We can debate about the, the cultural utility of debt, but in the United States, debt's a component of most large asset purchases. To the extent that it's a, an investment in a building or your own home, right? And we, we, we know somebody who got in a wreck recently and had to buy a new car. And I, I, you know, they can't buy the same car because the payment today is higher, right? They can't replace what they had, even with the insurance proceeds, apparently, isn't that? The specifics are not important. The point is, is so you're, you're going to have fewer purchases. You have fewer ancillary investments and purchases with me. You're not going to buy a new house. You're less likely to end up painting the rooms in it. You're less likely to buy a sofa. Right? Right. And that, that has a slowing effect, which, by the way, is the intent, right? That's what the Fed's trying to do because right. the inflation boogeyman is real. It's very, very, very scary. And so the question is, can you have a disinflationary environment and support economic growth and keep people employed? Or do you go straight into deflation, which is in most ways even scarier, right? Let's not overlook the fact that not just the United States, but essentially the entire developed world has what a lot of people would say is too much debt, right? So you've got too much debt and that's not just the government level, that's across the board. Um, households less so than in the past, but certainly corporations and definitely um, governments. And you have too much debt in a, high, in, a, in, a, in a high rate world, and that debt's rolling as well. It's going to consume a large portion of the federal budget. So, what do we do? Are we going to issue more debt? Are we going to run out of buyers for that debt because rate, rates are higher? This goes back to the transmission mechanism, which are the capital markets. Um, and so, to the extent that the Fed is successful in architecting uh, are averting inflation, let's say, or are slowing it because clearly they haven't averted it. Right? It's, but getting control of it is a better way to say it, I guess. That, you might have had that right with architecting at the beginning. Uh, well, <laughs> this, this, clearly, I need to architect a better way to describe this. Um, the, the, the point is, to the extent that you can construct, lead, whatever, a soft landing, it's way better than the other sides. And it's also really, really tough to do because there's a lot of debt out there. And so it's, it's a fascinating time to be allocating capital, to be sure. Yeah, I don't know if they've ever actually managed to do it, but I th the, the increase in debt, the increase in rates should make, you know, the equity multiples should come down. And it also affects your business results because you've got some clients who can't make acquisitions can't, can't purchase your yeah. goods without if they're not financing it and then your own cost of capital is is higher if you've got debt in there and you've got to roll the debt those three levers should mean that 
business values come down a lot, I think. And I don't think we've really seen that yet. Maybe the maybe the Magnificent Seven are not are sort of immune to it because they're self-financing. Still should impact the the multiple a little bit, but maybe they're wasn't clients. advertising revenue at one point considered economically sensitive? Yeah, and it was like the first thing that got cut was used an ad to be. budget. Used to be, yeah, yeah. yeah this is a gr- it used to be a great leading indicator, right? No, yeah. I think you're right. The extent that multiples are higher in certain businesses, it's obviously a reflection of the market's expectation of what those businesses can do. If we tap the brakes on economic activity, you would think those would come down. The flip side of that is there are certain businesses that are really good businesses that are forlorn from the multiple perspective. I mean, look at you know large banks, look at some resource businesses. You'd be hard-pressed to find double-digit PE types you know, for, for some of those. And so you've got greater, I'd say, disparity around valuations. And it wouldn't surprise me to see a narrowing of the spread from the top end to the bottom end of multiples in what you're describing. So does that mean high multiple stocks go down more? It's certainly possible. All I know is if I've got capital allocated to a high multiple stock right now, and and, and we do, to be clear, what we're looking for is the shift in the second derivative of growth. And said differently, it's not enough to grow. It's got to be growing faster. And if it's not, it'll be fast. Yeah, that probably describes some of the action that we've seen around the earnings where there's pretty good numbers, but the second derivative, as you say, mm-hmm. is indicating some slowing in the growth and they've been cut down a lot as a result. It also describes the variability in the results that you were alluding to earlier. Yeah, it's, it's hard to hide out. I mean, there's really no hiding places. You The banks have got a, lot of, got a lot of exposure to, I mean, they're highly, highly economically sensitive. Energy's economically sensitive. I don't know. Where's a where's a where's a hiding place? I, I I don't know. If there's a hiding place, but you know, that's why that's why we have jobs. Right? <laughs> Let's be honest. Yeah. Um, if it was easy, we'd all be. <laughs> yeah, it's it may be pretty straightforward, but it's definitely not easy. That's what keeps it so fascinating. That's why you know we, we joke around the office. The last day I leave the office, my toes are up. Um, just because it's yeah. a fun game, it's a really fun game. When you lose, it sucks, right? But it, but but with respect to overall positionings, now you can look and you can make a great fundamental case for energy as you were describing. And I know it's not as easy as it may have been, you know, when oil futures were negative in the spring of 2020. But then again, it didn't seem easy at the time then either. The fact remains. We, uh, and I, I, Jake knows this, I'm, I may not be your typical person from Houston in that I'm not a cheerleader for the energy business in particular. I think there are wonderful people doing wonderful things there, uh, but I'm not necessarily a chest pounding Houstonian with respect that we need to drill, baby drill, um, to the extent that I actually have an electric vehicle, which in some circles makes me a bit of a, at least transportation. Social justice warrior. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> In, in fairness, though, Scott, you you have taught me a lot about the energy industry. So, well, that's kind of you. I, and I've worked there, uh, you know, a bit. I mean, I I won't claim to, to. I've got a bit of a background. Let's just say that. Um, the fact remains is, however high-minded our ideals may be of replacing hydrocarbons in particular, we got to get to the point where we can do it, and we're not there. And so. There are, comp- and, oh, and by the way, 
the developed world's actually doing a pretty good job, right? At the margin, we're doing a pretty good job, broad strokes. The developing world, and, and are probably justified in the view that it's their turn and they should not be denied the path of economic growth for our ideals to a certain extent. And it so happens that the GDP intensity of oil, for example, in a developing country versus the developed world is higher and growing faster, right? And so if you put on another point or two to, to GDP in the United States or Europe, your oil goes up, but not near as much as a point or two of GDP yeah. will be. Yeah. It's it's massages, not uh, you know, yeah. cars for people. And, and by the way, if you take whether it's the EIA or the BP and some of these broad-reaching energy studies, and you look at the component of energy consumed in the developed world by versus developing, and, and, and for our my entire investing history, the developing world has been the tail, right, of the dog, and, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I just mean a smaller component, right. Um, that's no longer the case, right? The developing world, and, and this is way, way outside of my area of comfort with respect to knowledge, but my sense is that the developing world is consuming almost, if not as much, oil as, as the developed world. Said differently, to the extent there is any growth, you should have positive inflection of demand coming from the greater portion that is the developing world. And, and guess what? On the supply side, and this part we do know, we can't meet it. Right? There's just not enough. So we, we, we I mean, there, and, and at the same time, there are plenty uh, of investors who can't or choose not to own it. Right? Much like the tobacco industry of a few years ago, there are plenty institutional investors where it is strictly forbidden. Um, well, other than that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? <laughs> yeah. Well, no. I mean, all, uh, the, I, I don't think that's. The, I think there's a credible case to be made for cyclical improvement in equities in that space, based on unmet supply and the fact that a lot of people can't necessarily own it. And there will. And I look. I look at our clients who who can't own it, and I said, well, at a certain point, we're going to have to have a real conversation about what's a fair measurement of success. Because to the extent that our strategy owns one or two oil companies or energy businesses writ large, and that is, is a disproportionate share of, of the strategy's return, but you chose not to own it, which is fair, and it's I respect that, you underperform. It's not necessarily our fault then. Um, we're not there yet, right? But, but that day may come. And, and, and for individual investors who don't necessarily have an axe to grind, let's say, uh, or maybe they do on the climate, there are there are actually energy companies with scope two plans out there. Right? This, they're, they're, they're not not all of them. And, and, and certainly the industry is telling you in disparate moves. Uh, and, and, and these are not companies that we own, but, you know, BP seems to be moving more. Uh, away from hydrocarbon dependence, whereas we saw what Exxon and Chevron did. And by the way, there's no coincidence to the timing of the Chevron acquisition of Hess um, right after Exxon announced their acquisition of Pioneer. But those are two large acquisitions. A large deployment of capital from, from two companies that are essentially doubling down on their hydrocarbon exposure there. 
And on that topic, on that point, that's it, fellas. That's time. Uh, Scott, if folks want to follow along with what you're doing or, or get in touch, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to disappoint you because unlike most of the folks that you, you chat with, I, you're I'm not, not promoting exactly anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have a website. You may have heard those. Uh, VaughnNelson.com, uh, V-A-U-G-H-A-N-N-E-L-S-O-M.com. If that's not long enough and a sufficient obstacle, nothing is. And um, we do you, actually... Go ahead. Now the link that you discussed at the start, they can find that via the website. The link, the, the which there's a report or your bubbles, I think, or I'll have to bubble I, chart. It, it, I believe clear that it, they're compliant. In a portion of our marketing materials, which I believe are online, but I may need to make sure that it's added now as a consequence. And when I do that, I'll send you a direct link. Okay, thank you. I, I don't know that it's particularly revelatory on our on its own, but it's uh, certainly fit into the conversation as we were discussing. Scott J. Webster, thank you very much.